1923, uh, Jimmy Cox wrote a song called Nobody Knows You When You Are Down and Out. And since then, it's become something of a blues standard, and it's been recorded and covered by the, the various luminaries in the uh, music world. Uh, Nina Simone covered it. B.B. Uh, King, Eric Clapton, the Allman Brothers all have their version of this song. Nobody knows when you are down and out. And I particularly enjoy this song because of its lyric, and it goes something like this. Once I lived a life of a millionaire, uh, took all my friends out for a mighty good time. Then I began to fall so low, lost all my good friends, had nowhere to go, because nobody knows you when you are down and out. Nobody knows you when you are down and out. And you know what the song is saying? It's saying, you know, there are friends, and then there are friends. You know, there are people who love to hang around with you as long as the times are good and fun, but they disappear and they, they, they leave you just when you need them the most. There are friends, and then there are friends. And what is true of human relationship is also true in spiritual relationship because there are fair-weather Christians who, who go to church, who talk the talk, who walk the walk, so long as life is good and pleasant. But when life becomes hard and difficult, they lose their faith and their interest in God. Now, when such things happen, on the one hand, we do want to be compassionate for suffering people. But at the same time, you do realize that they were fair-weather friends, fair-weather believers. But you see here, Paul, he stays loyal to Christ through many trials, afflictions, and suffering and pain. Paul was not a fair-weather believer, and he was not a fair-weather friend. In fact, Paul's adversity is the forge that tempers his love for Jesus. And so that is what we are going to see this morning. And the first thing we see is Paul's loss, Paul's loss. Um, as you have seen, Felix, um, the previous governor of Judea, he knew well Paul's innocence, but he left Paul in prison for two years hoping to uh, get some bribe from him. And after the two years, Felix was recalled to Rome, and Rome sent a replacement governor, Festus. And the Jewish historian Josephus remembers Festus as a fair-minded and a hard-working man. And Festus had a daunting task before him because he has to repair the toxic relations with the Jews that Felix left behind. And so Festus, immediately upon his arrival, immediately meets with the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And there, 
the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. You see, during the two years Felix kept uh, Paul a prisoner was also the two years that Paul was kept under protective custody. And for two years, the Jewish people had wanted to kill Paul, but they were prevented. But now, there is a new governor, and this governor, he's eager to please the Jews. And that presented a, a promising new opportunity to kill Paul. And so they requested Paul's transfer to Jerusalem under false pretense, intending to kill him on the way. Now, for whatever reason, we are not told of Festus's inner thoughts or his motivation, but Festus denied the request. Uh, perhaps Festus had arrived and he had read something about Paul's situation, or perhaps uh, Festus thought that it's one thing to be accommodating and it's another thing altogether to be a pushover. But whatever reason, Festus denied the Jewish request and he ordered the Jews to appear and bring their case to him in Caesarea, where Paul was kept under protective custody. And in due time, the Jews brought many serious charges and Paul defended himself. It was customary in the court proceedings of those days that the defendant would summarize the charges laid against him before he made his defense. And that's what we have in verse 8. And by the way, it's, it's, it's these little things that we can almost uh, miss that show how familiar Luke was with, the, with the, the situation, the standards, and the conduct of the day that really add to our confidence of the reliability of scriptures. And Luke writes in verse 8, uh, Paul's defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. And so from Paul's defense, as he summarizes the accusations against him, we see that these accusations have three uh, big points. One, against the law of the Jews. Second, against the temple. And third, against Caesar. And what's interesting about that is that previously, the religious charges against Paul went nowhere. The Jewish people, the Jewish leaders accused Paul of turning his back on the, the, the law and the custom of the Jewish people, and they accused Paul of defiling the temple, but none of their accusations, none of their charges could be substantiated. And so the religious accusations went nowhere. That's why the Jewish people, uh, they changed their tactics. You see, they now accuse Paul of offense against Caesar. And the thought seems to be that Paul, since the religious charges against him went nowhere, that the accusation is now that Paul has caused unrest and he has caused riots in Roman territories and thereby has committed offense against the Roman society and against the Roman law and ultimately against Caesar. Now Festus, he is eager to smooth the relations with the Jews. And so he says to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem 
and they will be tried on these charges before me. Now, let's make things crystal clear. What's happening here is that now Paul is accused of crimes against Rome and Caesar, and that makes it a matter of the Roman court. He's being accused of crimes against Caesar, so the Roman court has jurisdiction, not the Jewish Sanhedrin. And so when, when Festus asks Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried, this is Festus taking the side of the Jews. And what Paul sees is that his case has already been decided against him. And so in verse 10, Paul says, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews, I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. And, he, and Paul sees that his case has already been decided. He appeals to Caesar. You see, a Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar to protect himself from summary judgment and punishment without a trial. And a Roman citizen, citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar if he is tried by magistrates outside of Italy, he could appeal his case to the Caesar. And once Paul made the appeal, Festus had no other option. And so Festus says, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Paul's loss he continues to suffer setback after setback. He continues to suffer. But that brings us to the next point. Jesus lost also. Jesus lost also. Now if you look at verse 13, Luke tells us that now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea, and greeted Festus. What's fascinating is that Luke expects his readers to know who Agrippa and Bernice are. And he had that expectation because, uh, you know, if they had tabloids back then, Agrippa and Bernice would be on the front page every day. Scandals follow them everywhere they went. Um, so I think it's helpful for us to review a uh, the Jewish history of the first century, just to get a sense of uh, who these people are. Um, in the year 47 BC, Julius Caesar appointed Herod the Great as the procurator of Judea. Julius Caesar appointed Herod the Great as, as the ruler and the governor of Judea. And Herod the Great benefited handsomely uh, in his relationship with Rome, and he was a staunch ally of Rome. And when he heard the news that there was born in Bethlehem the king of the Jews, he ordered the massacre of infants, um, not so much to protect Rome's interests, you see, but you know, he was protecting his own selfish interests. So that's Herod. Uh, appointed by Julius Caesar to be the procurator of Judea. 
But uh, Herod the Great, toward the latter years of his life, was widely considered to be incompetent, a ruler. So Rome appointed a series of uh, governors and, and officials to augment uh, Herod's government of Judea. And when Herod the Great died, his territory was divided amongst his heirs. And when you read through the New Testament Gospels, you come across a number of them. Uh, for our interest, we ran into Herod's grandson, Herod the king, and he was also called Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. Uh, he's the one who killed one of the apostles, James. And he's the one who was so arrogant uh, before the Lord that he, uh, he died a, a terrible, a painful death. And that was the year A.D. 44. And when Agrippa died, he had four children. His only son, Agrippa II, was at that time in Rome, and he was 17 years old. And Rome considered Agrippa II, at tender age of 17, to be too young to inherit his father's kingdom. And so Rome once again appointed a governor to rule over his father's territory. And in turn, Agrippa II, he was given a small region of Palestine to rule. And at the time of Agrippa I's death, uh, in, the, in AD 44, Agrippa II, he was 17 years old, and he had three sisters. First was Bernice, who was 16 years old, Maryam, at the time 10 years old, and Drusilla, at the time 6 years old. And of course, it's that same Drusilla that we read about in the last chapter who married Felix. And there were rumors of incest between the brother and sister Agrippa and Bernice and tongues wagged. And so Bernice was married off to the king of Cilicia in order to quell the rumors of this gross immorality. But Bernice soon left her husband and moved back in with her brother Agrippa. That's who we are reading about here. Agrippa II and Bernice. And so we read in verse 23, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Dressed to the hilt, wearing fine robes, wearing crowns of gold, surrounded by the leading citizens, to their applause and adulation, they entered the court. And Festus, uh, for his part, was glad to receive Agrippa because Agrippa was very familiar with Jewish matters. And you see, Festus was puzzled by Paul. He didn't understand the case against them. So Festus says in verses 25 through 26, but I found that he had done nothing deserving death. But as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But 
I have nothing to write to my Lord about him. You see, Festus, again, this is a long series of Roman authorities. Wherever the Christian, a Christian message, Christian uh, f- figures are brought before the Roman legal system, repeatedly, the Roman rulers declare them innocent. And again, uh, you remember the book of Acts ends in chapter 28 with Paul in Rome awaiting his meeting with Caesar. And I can't help but think that one of the reasons Paul has, uh, Luke has uh, compiled this narrative is to serve as a, a defense evidence to show to Caesar. You see, every single lower court before you have ruled Paul and his message innocent. But that said, at this point, Festus is simply puzzled. He doesn't know what to make of Paul. He can clearly see he's innocent of all the charges. But why is he so polarizing? Why is he so hated? And so he was glad to receive Agrippa, who was very familiar with Jewish matters. And, you know, Festus needs help. How do you send Paul as a criminal to Caesar when you're not sure whether there's any criminal charges against them. So Agrippa and Bernice enter the picture, and we will deal with them next week in chapter 26. But here, we need to make an observation that Luke is intentionally drawing the parallel between Paul and Jesus. In Luke chapter 23, we read that Jesus was brought before another Roman governor, Pilate. And Pilate says in Luke chapter 23, verse 4, about Jesus, I find no guilt in this man. And then Jesus was then brought before Herod the Tetrarch, the youngest son of Herod the Great. And so what happened to Jesus is happening to Paul. Both were innocent. Both were falsely accused. Both were judged by men who were morally disqualified to judge them. And the point that Luke is making is this. When he draws out this parallel between Jesus and Paul, What Luke is communicating to us over and over again is that for Luke, being a Christian means following Jesus' footsteps. Paul suffered loss because Jesus suffered loss. Paul suffered and he keeps losing because Jesus suffered and lost. And that brings us to the third and the last point. Loss is gain. Loss is gain. Now, at this point, Paul has spent more than two years in prison, and that's not even counting his other imprisonment prior to arriving in Jerusalem. So ask yourself this question. Why is Paul still loyal to Jesus? 
What did Paul ever get out of following Jesus other than loss, other than rejection, other than numerous beatings and imprisonment? You know, it's one thing to follow Jesus when following Jesus yields tangible benefits. It's one thing to follow Jesus when following Jesus brings you praise, adoration. Why do you keep following Jesus when only thing that you are getting out of it is loss, rejection, beating? You see, Paul was not a fair-weather friend who stays only when the times are good. Paul was loyal to Jesus even when his loyalty to Jesus meant loss and suffering. Why? Well, clearly the reason is because Jesus was Paul's faithful friend. Jesus was Paul's faithful friend. You see, Jesus, he did not come in pomp dressed in luxury, wearing a crown of gold. Jesus was stripped bare, and he wore the crown of thorns. Jesus did not have an entourage of important and upper-class people, but the people who followed him were the sinners, the ignored people, the forgotten people. And Jesus did not turn his back on Paul to perish in sin. You see, Jesus was a loyal friend to Paul, even though it meant that he had to suffer and lay down his life for Paul. You see, that is why Paul is a loyal friend of Jesus, because Jesus was a loyal friend to him. And Jesus Where's the title? You know, one of the things people mock Jesus for was that he was a friend of sinners. And when people said that, they meant it as a mockery and insult. But you know what's beautiful about Jesus is that Jesus wears the title friend of sinners with joy. Jesus is such a friend of the lowly. Jesus is such a friend of the suffering people. Jesus is such a friend to the weary and the poor that even though he gains nothing from them, he considers their friendship his treasure. And it is Jesus' friendship, his loyal friendship, that turns our suffering into a garden. In the garden of suffering, the seed of affliction blossoms into a deep friendship with Jesus. Did we see something like that in Psalm 34, the first passage we read this morning? David stuck up in between the rock and a hard place. And in the place of suffering, his love for God blossoms. You know, sometimes 
I think we, we don't realize that God sends us sufferings because that's where our friendship with Jesus grows. It's in the moments and the experience of affliction that we become something more than a fair-weather believer and a fair-weather friend. But just as affliction tempers friendship, it's our suffering that, that, that brings out of our hearts a deep love for Jesus. And that's where we come to know Jesus. And because of Jesus' friendship, our suffering becomes a garden. The seed of affliction blossoms into deep friendship. And we learn in some small measures what Jesus endured because he loved us. But more importantly, Jesus promises to his faithful friends lasting treasure that no man in his boasted pomp and show can match. You know, Agrippa and Bernice, they, they covered up their moral failings in fine robes and crown of gold. You and I, we will not wear a crown of gold which, if you read Revelation, is what pavement is made out of. God will not give you a crown of gold. Instead, James chapter 1, verse 12, we read, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Uh, have you ever considered maybe that's the reason why God allows suffering in your life? God allows suffering in your life so that out of the suffering, glory might come. So that out of the suffering, your friendship with Jesus might grow. So that out of the suffering, you might receive a crown. Crown not of gold or any any meaningless trinkets, but a crown of life. Because, you know, suffering, suffering inevitably feels like barren wilderness where life and joy go to die. That's what suffering feels like. But Jesus, Jesus is our friend. And because Jesus is our friend, our suffering is a garden and our loss is gain so dear loved ones let me say to you are you suffering are you in pain are you broken and are you weary would you look to Jesus he loves you and in the end you will wear the crown of life in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's pray together. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your instructions this morning, and we thank you for teaching us how we may persevere amidst our difficulties and trials. And we look to the Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great love for us endured the cross, who now seated at your right hand is leading and guiding us until we too stand with him in glory and in life. So Lord, would you please strengthen your precious friends in this room and elsewhere. May they find your strength, may they find your comfort, and may they find your presence to be all sufficient and more than sufficient for all their trials today and always. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.